Our New Testament passage and sermon text this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. You can find this on page 569 in the Bibles we provide, beginning with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we are continuing our study of the book of Ephesians, and we're finally getting to the place where we are looking at Paul's instructions specifically to husbands and wives. And before I get into this text, there are just a few things that I feel like it's necessary for me to address right here at the outset. The first one is I want to speak to uh, the single people who are with us this morning. Um, Sometimes in the church... We overemphasize marriage. Marriage is not the pinnacle of human existence. The most perfect human being who ever lived, who ever walked the face of the earth, was, was Jesus Christ, and he was single. Paul, who wrote this letter, who, is, who wrote what we're about to preach on, he also was single. And not only was he single, but in 1 Corinthians and other letters, he, he encourages singleness as a, a godly and fulfilling way to live. So I want to be sure, before we even start, that you recognize the application this morning is not that your life is incomplete somehow if you're not married and that you need to rectify that. For some of you, maybe someday if you're single you will be married and, and maybe some of this will be helpful, it'll be a good foundation. But even if you never get married and never will marry, There's something here for all of us this morning, because this passage tells us that marriage itself is a great mystery that tells us about Christ's love for his church. And so today, that's what we get. We can all learn something about Christ's love for us. And the second thing I want to say before we start is that I recognize that this is a passage, this passage and a couple of the ones that follow it is a passage that far too often um, has been abused. Christians have used these texts to justify sinful behavior, 
to justify oppressive behavior. And in the church, we need to own that. We need to confess that. We need to lament how we can see those places in history where where the church has been slow to act on behalf of those in positions of weakness. But we can also look at history and see that in those times when these texts have been rightly applied, when they have been rightly studied and rightly obeyed, these have been a transformational force in the world. That they have been a source of liberation. And the church has, has been a leader oftentimes in that. And so, recognizing that, the third thing I want to say is, uh, we need to remember we're in Ephesians. And there's a purpose to this book. The purpose we've been talking about the last couple of months The purpose is unity. This is a book about unity. This is a book about God's great mystery. The thing that he says in Ephesians 1, a a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. So this piece of it is, is just one part of that. This is a piece of how God is uniting all things on earth in Christ. In fact, the vision that he lays out here, the vision of a godly marriage is one of the most tangible and intimate expressions that we get to have of that on earth. When two believers become one in Christ, it's a microcosm. It's a a miniature version of what God is doing with the whole of creation. So this is good news for us. What's in these pages is is really good news for us. And with that said, I want us to dive into it this morning with joy. I want us to jump into this with a sense of expectation. And here's how I want us to tackle it. I want us to see, uh, first of all, the kingdom reversal of marriage. The kingdom reversal of marriage. And then I want us to see, specifically, Paul's instructions for wives and husbands. And then thirdly, I want us to look at the good news of Jesus and the church. So, the kingdom reversal of marriage. I think the first question we need to ask is a pretty broad one. What is the Christian like? What does a Christian do with their life? Last week, Pastor Moses was here and he preached for us and he read us these, the answer to that right before this. It says um, in verse 18, uh, be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what Christians do. That's what Paul says. He says Christians are people who walk in the Spirit. Christians are people who speak psalms who sing, who make melody in their hearts, who give thanks always, and Christians are people who submit. Right? That list sounds pretty good until the end. (laughs) Submit. We don't live in a culture that submits. We hear the word submission and we think subjection. We hear submission and we think subjugation. Submit. Democratic societies don't submit, right? We protest. That's what we do. 
But Paul says Christians do submit. He said it is a, a fundamental aspect of who we are. It is a byproduct. Submission is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the verse. All of us do that. Every one of us, without exception, we are all called to submit. But of course, our passage today doesn't say that, right? It doesn't say submit to one another. No, it says this. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So how are we supposed to swallow that? We tend to read that in 2018 and we say, wow, that is so outdated. That is so regressive. That might have been an all right thing to say 2,000 years ago, but that is not okay to say anymore. Well, the truth is, it wasn't an okay thing to say 2,000 years ago. This word has always been a countercultural word. And, and that means that we cannot start to understand this command. We cannot start to understand this text by starting with our culture. We need instead to, to start with God himself. Our God is a Trinitarian God. The Westminster Catechism, it says there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one true eternal God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their properties. That's the way the Westminster puts it. So there are three persons in the Godhead. They are equal. They are equal in power. They are equal in glory. And yet, the persons of the Godhead have distinctions. They have differences. And that distinction lies in the role that they play within the Godhead. Paul, he puts it this way. Philippians chapter 2. To talk about what those roles are, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's the question. Why, if they are equal, did God the Son and not God the Father submit to death? Well, we don't really know. Because that was God's plan. That was His purpose. That was... That was how he chose to bring about our salvation. But maybe further to the point we could ask, in submitting himself to the Father, was Jesus' glory, was his dignity weakened? Or 
was it enhanced? Well, it was enhanced, right? Of course it was enhanced. It says that he was given the name that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. So within God himself, we see this principle laid out of equality of persons with distinctions. And that's the idea here. When when Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands, it is no kind of statement of value. It is not some statement of one party being less capable than the other. It's about God's narrative. It's about God's story. It's about how wives and husbands each depict different aspects of this picture. This picture of God's redemption of us through the church. He says it, right? Very clearly, this mystery is profound. And I am telling you that it is about Christ and the church. But in case you still think it's unfair, and you might, you might say, well, it's still unfair to put, to, to put women in this secondary place, to put the wife in this secondary role. I want to encourage you to remember the gospel we have. Remember what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Do you remember that, that in this kingdom that Christ has brought in, the place of humility is the place of honor. The last become first. Jesus himself, Matthew 20, 28, he says what? Do you remember? He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The place of the wife, it's not less than but it is distinct. And it's exalted. It's exalted because the message of the gospel at the core is a message of reversal. The last become first. And that's true for the husbands as well. Like, let's talk about that for a second. It's true for husbands as well. Paul, he says, he uses this head and body metaphor here. But you know, he's not the first person to use a metaphor of, of the head and its relationship to the body. In fact, it was pretty common back in Paul's day to use that kind of illustration to talk about people in, uh, to talk about the emperors. Um, I just went on vacation last week. You, I don't know, maybe you didn't notice. I wasn't here. Um, and during that time, I did what uh, was most relaxing to me. I read about 300 pages on gender roles. I read, <laughs> I read the latest scholarship I could find. Um, and I read a lot of uh, some contemporaries of Paul and what they thought about head and body illustrations. And one of those people was Seneca. He was a philosopher that lived around the same time. And I want you to listen to his idea of how the head should relate to the body, okay? This is what contemporaries of Paul said about how the head should relate to the body. This is how pe what people would have been thinking when they heard this first brought up. Seneca says, while a Caesar needs power, the state also needs a head. The king alone has firm and well-founded greatness, whom all men know to be as much their friend as he is their superior. In his defense... The body is ready, the people are ready on an instant to throw themselves before the sword of assassins and to lay their bodies beneath his feet if his path to safety must be paved with slaughtered men. Not without reason do cities and peoples show this accord in giving such protection and love 
to their kings. It says the body gives protection and love to the head. And in flinging themselves and all they have into the breach whenever the safety of their ruler craves it. Nor is it self-deprecation or madness when many thousands meet the sword for the sake of one man. And with many deaths, ransom a single life. So in case you missed it, what Seneca is saying about the head, he says the head is the most important part. The head should be protected at all costs. That thousands should die to save the head and, and the head should never, ever think about sacrificing himself. In fact, the ruler isn't expected to be the one who loves. The head doesn't love the body. The body loves the head, but he just responds to the body with mercy. So that's what the ancient culture thought about this head-body picture. But here's what Paul says right after he uses that analogy. He says the husband is the head, but then he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. It's the kingdom reversal again. The, the first is last. The one at the front is the one who is called to die. It's not servant leadership, right? It's not the, that word in quotes that you can read about in, in business books. But it is true servanthood that the husband is called to. A husband is called to serve his wife with his very life. And that verse was radical in its day. And it's, it's still radical. It's still desperately needed for us now. I, I heard the story of um, this one uh, wife uh, of a leader in the church, and she herself was a really charismatic leader, um, and she was leading a Bible study, and when they came across this verse, and someone asked her in the group, how can you handle this kind of passage? Wouldn't you rather be on the same level with your husband? And she responded, why would I want to be brought down there? <laughs> I think that really gets at the idea of what's going on here. She says, my husband treats me like a queen. He serves me with his life. That is the kingdom at work. And it starts with our marriage. The last is first. The first is last. So now let's talk kind of, let's look specifically and, and see some of these instructions. What does Paul say that wives and husbands are supposed to do? What does this mean for us practically? Well, first let me say what it doesn't say, okay? This passage doesn't say anything about who washes dishes. This passage doesn't say that women should work in the home or that men don't need to change diapers. That's not in here. This passage doesn't say that husbands are better than their wives or that they are smarter than their wives or that they are wiser than their wives. In fact, men, I can say for sure, at least about our church, that's not the case. <laughs> no, what it says is this. It says the two people the two Christians involved in marriage, they are partners. They are equally made in the image of God. And Scripture says, wives should submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. And husbands should love their wives 
as Christ loved the church. There's really no other relationship like that on earth where there is this element of authority and submission and complete partnership at the same time. So how do we get our minds around that? How does that really work out? Well, first of all, I want to... I know that, that wives, it, it seems like a pretty terrifying thing to be told to submit to your husbands as to the Lord because your husbands aren't the Lord, right? Your husbands are sinners. But I want to be clear. In saying that, God doesn't give husbands permission to dominate their wives. He hasn't told husbands to be tyrants or that they can abuse you emotionally or physically. The command is not wives submit and husbands be the boss. The command is wives submit and husbands love. All of us are called first to obey God. Amen. And so as one, one of the authors I read this week put it, if husbands misuse their position... If they command what God forbids, or forbid what God commands, then it's a wife's duty to no longer conscientiously submit, but instead to conscientiously refuse to do so. For to submit in that kind of circumstance would be to disobey God. So the submission that, God, that Paul's talking about here is voluntary. It's wholehearted, and it's even conditional in that we always have to submit to God first. On the other hand, these commands that are given to each partner, they are not completely conditional. It doesn't say, for instance, it doesn't say wives respect your husbands as long as he's loving to you. And that's actually really good news for you because in the same way, you wouldn't want it the other way around. You wouldn't want it to say, husbands, love your wives as long as they respect you, right? It's not conditional that way. So husbands, let's talk about that side of it. Paul's command to you is that you should love your wives as Christ loves the church. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who, does, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. That is a truly crushing commandment. Husbands, it says you are called to love your wives like Christ loved the church. And maybe that, I could see how that sound, could sound nice, right? It could sound romantic, especially if you're reading it at a wedding or something like that, until you remember what the church is like. What is the church like, guys? The church is a mess. The church is filled with sinners. How does the church treat Jesus? The church is idolatrous. The church is unfaithful. The church is constantly turning away from him. The church does not 
deserve to be loved. And yet, Jesus loves us anyway. Relentless. Husbands, that, that kind of relentless, self-giving love is what you're called to. And more specifically, Paul says, you're actually called to seek your wife's sanctification. To seek her holiness. You're called to bathe her in the truth of God's love. Now, I want to, again, step out here and say, women, that doesn't mean that you have to sit around and wait around for your husband to, to lead you in devotionals or, or for your husband to, to lead your children towards to, in Scripture. You don't have to wait around. But men, it does mean that you are supposed to seek your wife's growth and her holiness. When was the last time you seriously contemplated the state of your wife's soul? When was the last time you prayed for her? You are called to nourish her and cherish her like your own body without exception. This is how Paul, he sums up the balance. He says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So let me ask you men first, how are you doing with that? Do you love your wives? Do you love your wife like you love yourself? Do you spend time considering how to meet her needs and desires as much as you consider your own? Do you cherish your wife? Now, maybe you're hearing those questions and, and maybe you're answering them internally and you're saying, yes, yes, I do cherish my wife. Well, let me ask you then, does she know it? In the same way, it's worth asking wives, do you respect your husbands? Maybe you contemplate it inside and you say, yes, yes, I do. Well, my question then is, does he know it? That is the dynamic here. When, when wives and husbands are living this way, they will be transformed. They become one. And so let me just real quickly talk about how this could potentially look. What it might look like for a godly couple to, to live this way, especially amidst a conflict. And, and I say this knowing that for every couple, we kind of have to figure out how this works. Um, but the first story I wanted to share is the story of, of Meredith Klein, who was a theologian, uh, probably one of the more important theologians in the last hundred years. And he was a, a well-known professor at Westminster Seminary. And uh, toward the latter part of his career, he got an opportunity to go work at Gordon-Conwell in New England up here. And that school was not nearly as well-known as Westminster at the time. It was kind of just an upstart. And he had the opportunity, uh, but he didn't want to take it. And his wife, she was from New England. Her whole family was here. And so they had an argument about it. They came to an impasse. She deeply wanted to go take this job because she wanted to be near her family, her parents who were, who were aging. She wanted to be closer to home. She wanted to be somewhere she was more comfortable. And they came to this impasse. And 
Meredith, he took some time to, to think about it and pray about it, and he came back to his wife after reflecting on this passage, and he said to his wife, I've read through this, and I, I know where it impasse. I know that it would be better for my career for us to stay here in, in Philadelphia. And I know that, that I'm the head, and that I, you are supposed to submit to my leadership, and through doing that, you're going to learn more about Christ's love for the church. And so he said, and so, as a result, we are moving to New England. I'm going to do what you want to do. I'm going to give up my dreams. And you know, it was a great thing. Uh, Meredith Klein continued his career at Gordon-Conwell to, to great success. Another story is the story of a, a, another pastor uh, who had the opportunity to take a call in a new city. And they had been fairly comfortable in a not very demanding position uh, in another town. And when he brought the idea up to his wife, his wife, filled with fear, did not, could not conceive of leaving their home, going to a new city, pursuing this new mission. And so the husband, after they, they talked about it, he's like, fine, fine, if you, if you don't want to go, we won't go. And her response to him in that moment was, no, you can't do that. You can't put this on me. You, you have to lead. We're at an impasse, and you need to make a decision for the good of our family. But don't put it on me. Don't abdicate. And so they ended up moving to this new city and new ministry, and that was, uh, that was Tim Keller's story for how he got to New York. They ended up planting this church, and both of them would tell you now 30 years later that it was the best decision they made in their lives. Now, in the first scenario, the husband showed his wife Christ's love by taking the sacrificial place, by giving up what he wanted for her sake, for her holiness. And in the second place, it was the wife who, who called her husband to take his place, and in doing so, showed him what Jesus was like. Now, each couple, like I said, we all have to figure out our own way to do this. Everybody does this a little differently. There, there's no clear descriptions of here's all the jobs the husband does and here's all the jobs the wife does. But I want to promise you that as we live out this text, as we try to follow this in our marriages, we're going to see Jesus through each other. That's the promise here. So the last thing I want to talk about is the good news of Christ in the church. Probably more than any other sermon I've preached in recent memory, I have been worried about this sermon. I've thought a lot about this. I've read a lot about this. I've fretted a lot about this. I woke up this morning at four and couldn't go back to sleep. <laughs> I'm worried about it, one, because I know that I am far away from the standard. I'm not a good husband a lot of the time. I am, I am often not like the second Adam. I'm not loving like Christ, but I'm like the first Adam who in the garden was, was confronted with his sin and says, oh, no, no, it was the woman that you gave me. I find myself in, in arguments wanting to, to, to blame my wife and put things back on her and save myself. So I want you to know I'm not up here preaching this because I've got it all figured out. 
I'm not standing here to be your example. Christ is here to be our example for both of us. <laughs> but I'm also worried about this passage because I know that this is the kind of passage that's really great for making us look at our spouses instead of ourselves. I know that there are a lot of marriages here in our church that are in hard places. There's this book, it's called His Needs, Her Needs. I don't recommend it. But I was reminded of this, this time when Melissa and I were really early in our ministry and there was a couple who, for whatever reason, decided to come to us for marriage counseling. We'd been married for like six months. I don't know anything about being married. Somebody had given us this book and we read it and so we gave it to them. And when they came back to talk about us, this book, it goes one chapter on his needs, one chapter on her needs, one chapter on his needs, one chapter on her needs. I don't know how, I don't remember the content at all, but what I remember was these two people came back and they said, look at all these things you're supposed to be doing for me. The wife said, Here's what, here are my needs, why aren't you meeting them? The husband said, here are my needs, why aren't you meeting them? Don't do that, guys. Don't do that with this sermon. I hope that, that what you can remember today is that wherever you are, that God is calling you, personally, you, to deeper obedience in your own marriage. Don't go home tonight and say, Pastor told me these are all the things you're supposed to be doing. Please, I'm begging you, don't do that. Instead, why don't you go home and repent? Why don't you go home and confess your own failings? Why don't you look at this list and tell your spouse what you long to be like? Husbands and wives, why don't you pray together tonight? Why don't you pray for each other that God might make us into the men and women He's created us to be? And not just tonight. Why not start tonight? And for every one of us in this room, for married, for, for single alike, we cannot leave here without remembering that these marriages all around us are a profound mystery. They are showing us Christ's love. If it wasn't for Christ's unrelenting love for the church, none of our marriages would have a chance. If it wasn't for Christ's submission on our behalf, we would all be hopelessly lost. But Jesus loves the church this much. Whether you're married, whether you're single, this is a picture of how Jesus loves you. You see, we are selfish. We are arrogant. All of us. Both men and women. We, are, we mistreat the people that we love. We demand. We domineer. We are bent on getting our own way. We are unfaithful and we are prideful. But Jesus is the true bridegroom. And we are His bride. Jesus has loved us perfectly. He has sacrificed Himself for us literally. That's the Gospel. He gave Himself for you. And so the invitation I want to make to all of us is that you would just confess your sins today. That you would confess that those things I just listed, those things are true of you. 
and that you'd come to Jesus and be made whole. I want to invite you to take off those old ways of self-preservation and self-protection, of, of domineering and pride and selfishness, to take that stuff off and instead, today, put on Christ. I was reminded of an old song from a few years back. I don't know if you've heard it. Um, it's a Christian song. And the words were, I am a whore, I do confess. But I put you on like a wedding dress and I run down the aisle. I'm a prodigal with no way home and I put you on like a ring of gold and I run down the aisle. Folks, Jesus has kept his vows where we have not. So run down the aisle right here. Come down to this table. Run here and receive his mercy. Receive his power to transform you and to change you into people who love one another and serve one another like Jesus did. I want to invite you to that now, and I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for this word, but I, I preach it with fear and trembling. I preach it knowing that uh, I am a flawed man with much sin in my own life. And I pray, Lord, that any untruth would fall away, that only the truth of your scripture would remain. Lord, I pray for mercy. Lord, I pray that you would fill in where I'm lacking. And Lord, I pray for hope and healing in our homes. I know that there are many people who are, are hurting. It's real. It's painful. It's hard. God, I pray that you would move. That you would work deep repentance. That you would humble us. Lord, I pray that you might make us a church where people see Jesus in our marriages. And I pray, Lord, that you might make all of us into people who remember your sacrificial love. God, would you change us? Would you make us holy? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.